Just by that uh, reading there, I'm sure you can tell we're in for a little treat today. Um, well, good morning, everybody. Hope you guys have had a good summer. I know we're just entering August, but I don't know about you guys, but August really hit the ground running for me, and I'm kind of okay with it because I am so ready for fall to be here. So if you disagree with me, that's okay. We can still be friends, I guess. Uh, for those of you who haven't met me, my name is Amanda. I'm one of the associate pastors here at Midtown, and I have the privilege of continuing our journey through the Minor Prophets. Um, this has been probably one of my favorite series that we've done. It's been so impactful. We've talked about a lot of hard and challenging things, but we've also been reminded of God's faithfulness and goodness along the way, and that's just been so rewarding and impactful to my faith. So I hope it's been doing the same for you. And believing in God's goodness is not always easy. Today we sang uh, Canvas and the Clay and the words, you make all things work together for my future, for my good, for your glory, and for your name. It's not always easy to sing things like that, as Alex mentioned earlier Sometimes we struggle to believe that. Sometimes we struggle to even get those words out when we're singing in worship because life is hard. Sometimes we're hit with a health diagnosis. Sometimes we have a difficult family relationship or just many of life's general suffering. And it reminds me of this quote from a Cinderella story. Yeah, gonna go there. Um, many of you might know this quote, but it's waiting for you is like waiting for rain in this drought, useless and disappointing. And while Hilary Duff's character might have been saying this in a romantic context to Chad Michael Murray, um, I think we can get the sense of what it's making us feel, though. Sometimes when we pray, sometimes when we think about having faith or having hope, we really feel like it's a useless and disappointing journey. It's something that I think we've all experienced. If you haven't, I'm so glad for you. Um, genuinely, I'm glad if you haven't. But if you have, I think most of us have, um, you know, I think... We all just know what that struggle is. We know what it's like to sit in that. And in fact, I've even had several conversations this week with various individuals who were just sharing about how it's really hard right now to believe in the goodness of God. Life has been so cruel and it's so barren. It's hard to believe that there's anything else past this. It's hard to even sit aside and dream or imagine what could be other than the sorrow that's inflicting them now. It's hard to do anything but say, okay, well, I guess I'm going to sit here. I'm going to embrace the darkness. I'm going to adapt. And I'll just find contentment in life being really, really hard. Because what's the point of doing anything else, right? Have you ever been there before? Just ready to just give in. We're going to sit here. 
It's too hard to do anything else. You've been waiting for so long. You've been persevering so much, and you're just in such deep pain that the thought of trusting or hoping is unbearable. At some point when we're in those situations, we do have to choose, though. We do have to make the choice. Are we going to sit in the pain, or am I going to believe? Am I going to continue to have faith? And just like Israel, when we find them in this passage, we are left asking how and why are we even able to continue in our faith? Good thing for us, God sent some prophets or messengers um, to the people of Israel that are going to speak to us as well. Last week, we learned that Haggai came and spurred Israel to move and go back to Jerusalem. And today, we're going to learn about how Zechariah then came to encourage them in their faith as they returned. So, Today we get to hear from Zechariah, and we're going to look some, through some visions, so hang with me. But is, he provided Israel with some visions that really were meant to spur on their faith and teach them why and how we can have faith. So before we dive into the text, we're actually going to spend a little time today talking about what faith is, um, just to make sure we're all kind of on the same page as we talk through this. You know, we tend to think of faith as just this, like, mental capacity that we have. We are going to think and believe something. It's an inner state or a mindset, a conviction even, or even a confidence. And for Christians, we would say our confidence or our faith is in God. And as Christians, we're also prone to make ourselves believe that the right response to any moment of difficulty or doubt or question is to just believe harder, just believe more, say more positive things, say more faith-filled things, quote that scripture, it'll change everything. Not that I, I, I believe that. I believe praying scripture is great. However, faith just begins in our minds. Mental affirmation is just the beginning of faith. It actually ends with our obedient actions. And as Matthew, author Matthew Bates, um, in his book, Salvation by Allegiance, it's a great book, you should read it sometime, he calls obedient action enacted loyalty. And so when it comes to faith, we need to have enacted loyalty. Hebrews 11 verse 1 also supports this in, as it defines faith as the substance or reality of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. Faith is an action, not just a mindset. It's not just telling everyone or yourself that you believe in God. It's not just saying, I will experience the promise of God, but it's actually taking a step to step into that promise of God. It's actively participating now in what God has promised for the future. And in this way, faith is a mental affirmation that grows into loyal obedience, or what Bates calls allegiance to God. We're going to be using allegiance and faith interchangeably today, and that, that might make some of you a little unsteady. The word allegiance doesn't exactly have 
great connotations all the time. Um, a lot of times when we think of allegiance or loyalty and obedience, we're thinking politics, we're thinking countries, we're thinking you know nationalistic views. But sometimes we're even thinking about sports teams. I say in in King uh, Chiefs Kingdom, you know. But I digress. We're loyal to our countries or to parties. And oftentimes when we bring those things up, it leads to quite the discussion, sometimes, most of the times, division or uniformity. You're either for us or you're against us. There's really no other options. And we lack the ability oftentimes to actually hear an opposing view and sit with it and still come out friends. We can have opposite views and still be friends. But that's a sermon for another day. But every aspect of our lives as humans requires our allegiance. It's pulling for our allegiance every direction, whether it's as big as politics or as small as your favorite sports team. And I know I mentioned the Chiefs. I do love football, so let me just throw that out there. But I also really love soccer, football. Anybody? We love football. Right now, the Women's World Cup is going on. I don't know if you guys have heard anything about it. This morning, I saw that uh, Power and Light did a 4 a.m. showing of one of the games. So that's some loyalty right there. That is some extra dedication. And if you have been to a soccer game, if you know anything about soccer, the fans are pretty dedicated. We're pretty wild out there. And as a loyal fan, you have rules that you have to abide by. There are things that you must do. So I frequently visit the supporter stands for Casey Sporting. Um, you know, it's, it's a wild time. But there are things that I have to promise not to do. Otherwise, it's going to end poorly. I have to make sure I'm wearing Sporting Casey's colors, first of all. You can't be can't be going in there with any other colors. You also can't just be bringing people in who are gonna like chant for the other team because first of all, for their own protection, but also because that's just not, that's not what that area is for. It is a sacred area, so to speak, where we have to protect the cauldron. If you don't know, that's what the seating area is called. I promise I'm not doing witchcraft. <clears throat> so, and this is a light example of how our allegiance is pulled, a small example of what it looks like day to day for our allegiances to be pulled in either direction. And while we might prefer to use words like loyalty or obedience to soften the blow, all of these words in reality communicate where our allegiance or our faith is placed. And as Christians, we are called, we are reborn in the family of God, called to change our allegiance from the things of this world and the people of this world towards an allegiance in God. Allegiance communicates who and what we are loyal to and obey. Israel had a pretty clear answer for who their allegiance was supposed to be for, God. After all, they had a covenant. They literally pledge their allegiance to God. But from time to time, as we know, they broke that covenant. They broke that relationship through their disloyalty and their disobedience. And this is exactly where we find Israel in the book of Zechariah. We are seeing them called back into allegiance with God, called to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. 
And Zechariah is a book telling the story of post-exilic Israel, so they're just coming out of exile, as they return to Jerusalem per the prophet Haggai's encouragement. And we find Israel, the exiled people, hopeful for their promised messianic kingdom. And as they return to Israel, they're still in mourning over their exile. I mean, they've been exiled for 70 years. I would be mourning too. And they're still mourning their promise that has yet to come, and it seems like it's never going to come. But as they return, Zechariah shares a series of visions, retelling Israel's history, breaking the covenant, coming back into relationship with God, and ultimately calling them into repentance. And Zechariah has a word of encouragement to Israel that God has not forgotten them. He hasn't forgotten his promise, and in fact, he was going to restore their relationship and build a new kingdom using them as the foundation. And in this, Zechariah directs the people of Israel towards a spirit-empowered faith. He's asking if the people of Israel would lift their heads from their mourning and trust the promise of God would be fulfilled. And by trusting God to fulfill his promise after nearly 70 years of waiting, that's easier said than done. I don't, I've never had to wait 70 years for something because I'm not 70. <laughs> and I hope when I get to 70, I'm not saying that I've waited 70 years for this. But I can imagine it's much easier said than done. Zechariah starts off with this promise from God that he will return to Israel as they repent and turn to him. And with this warning comes a, it, with this comes a warning about being like their forefathers, about staying disobedient, not listening to God. He's calling them away from that. And we see this same promise about God returning to Israel as they return to him in James chapter 4, verse 7 and 8. James gives instructions to submit to God and resist evil by drawing near to him. He says, submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded." good nicknames in there. God's promise is consistent throughout the Bible. He's consistent to say that when his people turn from their ways, when they repent, that he will in turn be faithful to draw near to them. And after this opening promise in Zechariah, we see uh, what is called a chiastic pattern. Say that five times fast. This is really a pattern. It's a literary technique that repeats messages in an inverse manner. So sayings like when the going gets tough, the tough get going. Okay. It's the same message. It's just inverse said a little bit differently. So we see here that the chiastic pattern used in Zechariah is really just meant to emphasize the message that Zechariah or God is trying to communicate. And in Zechariah, specifically, we have eight visions that he goes through, and they are paired into four pairs that all call the people of Israel into a spirit-empowered faith. 
Um, the Bible Project actually has a wonderful imagery for the book of Zechariah. I find this pretty helpful. It's going to be kind of small on the screen, but there's a link in the sermon guide as well. Um, but Bible Project has this, and it shows the pairing of the vision. So in the bottom left there, you can see the, the first and the eighth are paired, second and seven, three and six, four and five. And so we're going to take some time just to go through these briefly, um, because some of them mention horns and lamps and olive trees, and who knows what that means, but we're going to talk about it. So the first pair here actually shows the soon coming rise of Persia, which would mean the conquering of Babylon, which is actually like a really powerful message of peace for Israel because their oppressors for the past 70 years are going to get conquered. So victory for Israel. And this victory leads Israel actually to question, does this mean that now is the time that we get our messianic kingdom? Is our promise actually going to be fulfilled? But the way that God answers, he says, yes, that promise is going to be fulfilled, but I'm not going to give you a timeline. Classic. And as they hear the as we all hear the collective groan of Israel, because great, uh, that's a clear answer. At least that's what I would do. I'm impatient, so maybe you guys are better than me. But he says yes, the promise will be fulfilled. Just doesn't give them a time. And then in the second pair of visions, we reflect on Israel's past sin and exile. Thanks, God. We needed that reminder. Good walk down memory lane. And then for the third pair, he, it involves measuring Jerusalem. It kind of is reminiscent of all the other measurings of the temples. It's really exhilarating, but it is actually, it is actually exhilarating because it's about rebuilding a new Jerusalem and God restoring the covenant. So that is exciting. And this pair of vision also gives the promise that Jerusalem will be a beacon of hope for all the nations, a place where people will gather to encounter God. Can you imagine coming out of 70 years of exile and then being promised that you are going to be the beacon of hope for others? I can't imagine a better way for God to turn my morning into dancing. And finally, in this last pair of visions, this is where we're going to camp out for the day. But these visions are about two key leaders in Israel. The first is Joshua, the high priest. The second is Zerubbabel, the descendant of David, but also the governor of Judah at the time. And in these two visions, we find them in Zechariah chapter 3 and 4, they offer us a vision of why, our faith, why we can have faith and how we can have faith. So we're going to take a deeper look into these chapters, and we're going to start here in Zechariah chapter 3. We find this vision about the high priest Joshua, and it teaches us why we can have faith. It contains this beautiful imagery of God's redemption and restoration. God, in this vision, God takes off Joshua's old rags and he replaces them with new, clean clothes. And Joshua is the high priest, in the, and in this vision, he is representative of Israel, of the people of Israel. And the type of redemption that's offered by these rich, new clothes 
is beyond the power of Joshua as high priest. Now, as high priest, Joshua's role was to be the representative and the mediator between the people of God and God himself, both for repentance and in worship. The high priest was responsible for enforcing the covenant and also directing the hearts of the people. So there Joshua stands, unable to help himself, before the judge, God himself, in an unusual position for him, because he's normally used to being the one standing in place, judging others, and finding atonement for them. But God doesn't just leave Joshua there helpless in his rags. He provided new clothing that came with it, the promise of direct access to God which this is a powerful promise because previously the priests didn't have direct access. They could enter the Holy of Holies in the temple, but that still didn't get them the full access to the presence of God. And now God is saying, you will have this ability. And this promise to Joshua is given as a representation and in anticipation of our future relationship with God that we have through Jesus, who is our new high priest. This offers us direct access to God. What an amazing promise. And Zechariah was looking to the future and a day in which salvation would come to Israel. And we have seen that salvation come. We have seen it. We live in a world being transformed by Jesus. Jesus is the why behind our faith. In the midst of the good and the bad, we remember that Jesus is proof that God fulfills his promise and that he answers every promise in just the right time. Jesus is our why, but he's also our hope that enables our faith. First Peter verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again and to, uh, to be a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Through Jesus' death and resurrection, we have hope. Jesus is our why. And God has shown himself faithful, but even still, we can find ourselves in a place of doubt, of questions, being anxious about God's faithfulness. We can find ourselves like Joshua, helpless before the Lord. And while this vision to Joshua was representing his spiritual helplessness that we all share with Joshua, we all find ourselves impure in need of God's holiness. There are moments in our lives that also leave us feeling helpless. Moments in our lives that lead to questions and doubts about our faith. And as an Enneagram 2, if you don't know what that is, basically, it's called the helper. I like to help people. Um, it's my Achilles heel, honestly. I hate when I am not able to help somebody. It kills me because the thing that brings me the most joy is being able to help someone. So when I can't do that, when I can't help myself, I'm left feeling helpless and I don't know what to do with that feeling. Being helpless is something that the Lord has had to teach me a lot about in my life, and he's still teaching me. Over time, I have learned that the gift of presence 
is beautiful and so necessary, even and especially when there are times of hopelessness. And whether you love to help people or not, I think we can all agree we don't like to feel helpless. But we all have. At some point, we've felt hopeless, and I'm sure we'll feel it again. COVID strikes, and the medical field has no answers. Layoffs happen. The economy is trash. Where are we going to turn? Illness strikes, and the doctors can't figure out anything. All feelings of hopelessness. And it's painful when we can't help ourselves. And it's even more painful when we can't help those around us. And it's often these times of hopelessness and pain that lead to our moments of questions and doubt. Where is God? Why is this happening? It's so natural for us to begin to question if God even cares. If he doesn't care, then why bother? Why bother with my loyalty and obedience? Why have faith? If things like this are going to happen, why? I mean, loyalty has to be earned, right? And I need proof. I need a track record. Has God earned my loyalty? And if I'm honest right now, I feel like my trust is broken. So I don't feel compelled to commit my loyalty or pledge my allegiance. And it's in these moments that we're often confronted with the cliches that tell us, just believe more. But remember, faith isn't just a mental capacity. It's not just believing hard, but it's walking in loyal allegiance to God. We're told and we convince ourselves that a good Christian, whatever that is, wouldn't have these types of doubts and questions. But guys, doubt isn't decreased faith. It's actually matured faith. Doubt is part of our process of growing in our faith. I actually encourage you guys to have questions. And I ask you to lean into them. Don't just leave them behind and bury them. Wrestle with your questions and your doubts. Invite God into those questions and doubts. And I, and I encourage you to invite a spiritual leader into that process with you. The pastoral team and I are glad to sit with you through that and to journey with you. I don't guarantee we're going to have answers, but I do guarantee our presence. And I may not have the answers as to why things have happened in your life why the answer to things was so delayed or even is still missing from your life. I don't know why painful things have happened and the road was so lonely. But what I do know is that avoiding God, his scripture, and his people is only going to increase those beliefs and feelings. You know, studies have shown that for every one negative experience, we need three positive ones to override that in our lives. And I'm asking us today to give God a chance to give us three more positive experiences. And if it's too hard to believe for three more, look back and find the promises that God has fulfilled. Look back and find those moments where God has come through for you. Practice your faith by keeping open lines of communication. 
even if it's just to get up and ask God a question or to tell him how angry you are. He can handle our emotions, every bit of sorrow, anger, and pain. Just please don't let your pain stop you from asking the questions. Don't let your questions and your doubt cause you to walk away from God. Practice that step of loyal obedience to just say, God, I'm mad at you. Faith begins with engaging our mind, but it ends with us taking action. And just like Joshua, all God asks is that we have faith, to be loyal and obedient, not just in our minds, but in our actions. Stay in the fight. And through this vision to Joshua, we have learned that Jesus is why we can proceed with loyal obedience in hard times. And through the last vision about Zerubbabel, um, we're going to learn how we can have faith. We come to the scene in chapter 4. We find a golden lamp with a bowl on top, accompanied by two olive trees on either side. It seems very picturesque. Pretty straightforward, I'm sure you all know. But let me help you out here. Scholars agree that the two olive trees are symbolic of the two leaders that we've been talking about, Joshua and Zerubbabel. And it's debated, but most commonly understood, that the lamp is representative of God's presence. So with that in mind, this vision given to Zechariah uh, actually symbolizes God's spirit empowering his anointed ones. It's meant to encourage Joshua and Zerubbabel that God will equip them, and he gives them instructions to wait upon him wait upon God, and together they will lead the returned people of Israel. You see, at the time, Zerubbabel was rebuilding the temple. So this message was encouraging to him that this task wasn't going to be done by his own power or his own might, but by the Spirit of God. Zechariah 4.6 infamously says, Not by might nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord. God is the source of Zerubbabel's authority and power. Therefore, only through his spirit will Israel be restored and the temple rebuilt. But we have to ask ourselves, is God's power really necessary to put some bricks on top of each other and rebuild this temple? I mean, Zerubbabel, he was the governor. He had all of the political and military power. He could have snapped his fingers and had somebody build this. No problem. Could it physically have been built without God? Sure. But as scholar Joyce Baldwin puts it, only if God's spirit governs every detail can service be glorifying to him. By God's spirit alone is true redemption possible for the disobedient Israelites and for us. God is calling Zerubbabel with all of Israel to be people full of God's spirit. And that is how we have faith, through spirit empowerment. Now, spirit empowerment isn't just the dramatic flair. It's not the, just the awe-inspiring moments of our life. You know what I'm talking about. You probably have people or have read stories of people doing amazing things, great steps of faith, and you think, man, I could never, or only if, that would be crazy if that happened to me. 
the ones where it's so crazy that you can only believe it after it's been done, after it's been proven that God showed up. The Holy Spirit does empower us to have radical faith and for us to commit radical acts of faith, to do things that we can't do alone. Things like loving our enemy and sometimes even loving our neighbor. That is a radical act of faith, guys. Forgiveness. I don't know about you if you've ever been deeply wounded by somebody, but if you have, you'll know just how much God's strength and grace had to be given to you to extend that forgiveness. Just like Abraham leaving home, starting on a journey, not knowing where he's going, just taking that step of faith to follow God. All of our missionary friends, we say thank you for being examples of that. Faith is always linked to action and obedience. And sometimes it can seem nonsensical, but it only makes sense if God's promise is true. Faith is believing because of proof in the past in spite of current circumstances. And I love this quote from pastor and theologian Tim Mackey. He says, Obedience is about living in the present as if the future has already arrived. It's not blind faith. You're doing it because you can point back to the resurrection of the risen Jesus. Faith is a leap, but it's not blind. Author Matthew Bates puts it this way. He says, real biblical faith is not a general positive mindset or blind optimism, but is directed towards a defined object. And that object's trustworthiness that sources and fixes faith's genuineness. So if we want to grow in faith, we should study and contemplate God's extraordinary reliability. It's because God keeps his promises that we can pledge our allegiance to him. Worship team, if you would join me. It's through the Holy Spirit that we're able to walk in loyal obedience. As God realigns our hearts with his own, he empowers us to pledge our allegiance to the only one worthy. So how can we practice this spirit-empowered faith? I have a couple suggestions. First is that we got to remain loyal. And we can do this through our mental affirmations. We can do this through encouraging our soul with stories of faith. You know, in moments of hopelessness, we can find ourselves really embracing the bleak in life, and we can find ourselves commiserating with our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ over really hard things. And I am totally a believer of having people sit with you in the darkness. You need people who are going to be there and say, man, this is hard. But we also need people in our corner to remind us to have faith. We need people in our corner that are going to say, hey, remember what Jesus did. Remember his promise. We need people to spur us on into faith. That's why we read scripture, guys. 
reminded of stories that of our extended spiritual family throughout the years. People like Abraham and Isaac and Ruth, Esther, John, Paul. I encourage you to revisit scripture. If you want a summary of it, visit Hebrews 11. It's a great summary of the heroes of the faith and their stories. Let your heart be encouraged by scripture. But I also encourage you to let your heart be encouraged by current stories of faith. Sometimes that can be hard to find. If you don't know somebody who's done something, it's hard to be reminded of those things. But there are plenty of books out there that talk about wonderful, audacious lives of faith. One in particular that comes to mind for me is uh, a book called My Adventure in Faith, and it's written by Colton Wickramarathna, and he's a dear friend's grandfather. Um, it's a remarkable book. Honestly, anytime I need to be reminded of how I can take a step of faith, I read this book. You can find it on.